what you hear is who it depends on who you are and i think that's a thing we sometimes lose because we sort of imagine these the sort of the listener in the 16th century and they, there was no the listener back then so anymore. this is identity it really is i think so i think i think um you know it's it's i want to resist the idea of this, these sort of um, monolithic interpretations that's that held true for everyone Every once in a while, I'll be sitting next to someone on a plane or on a train, and they'll ask me what I do. I typically say that I'm a professor, and then they'll usually ask what I teach, and I tell them I teach music history. The next question is almost always the same. They'll ask, do you play an instrument? And I tell them I play saxophone, and we'll talk about that for a bit. And then I put in my earbuds, or I open a book, or I look at my phone, or I do anything that us millennials do to avoid talking to strangers for more than 45 seconds. These brief conversations over many years have given me an acute sense of what people know and what they don't know about my profession. Because yes, I am a professor, and yes, I do teach music history, but there's actually a more specific name for what it is that I do. I'm a musicologist. In fact, back in grad school, before I could say I was a professor and when I didn't always want to tell people I was a student, I used to say I was a musicologist and I was usually met with blank stares. Then I'd have to explain, usually tendentiously and a bit apologetically because after all, I was still a grad student, what a musicologist was. I couldn't really blame people for not knowing. I'm not a zoologist or an archeologist or a psychologist or any of those other ologists that people already seem to know about instinctually because they learned about them in second or third grade or whatever. But eventually I got tired of offering my explanations, and so when I could, I started telling people I was a professor of music history. Lately, though, I've been thinking more and more about how important it is to actually explain my field, not in a few sentences on a plane or at a dinner party, but in long-form conversations that give a true sense for what it is that musicologists and music theorists and ethnomusicologists actually do. And thus, I've started this podcast, Sound Expertise because that's what we are ultimately. We're experts in sound. We study the meaning of sound today, yesterday, and many, many years ago. We do this in all kinds of different ways. We talk to people, we read books, we analyze musical scores, we immerse ourselves in archives, because we believe that knowing a lot about sound, mostly musical sound, can tell us more about the world. So in the coming weeks, if you continue to tune into Sound Expertise, and I hope that you do, you'll hear a lot more of me. I'm a musicologist named Will Robin talking with other scholars of sound, other sound experts, musicologists, ethnomusicologists, music theorists, music critics. We'll be talking about our research, our teaching, what it means to study music in the way that we do. We'll talk about motets and operettas, university-based hip-hop ensembles and Sega Genesis games, and a lot more. And when I first began brainstorming who I wanted to talk to for this podcast, I started thinking about research that was very far from my own wheelhouse. I work on contemporary classical music in the United States, what composers are up to right now in the present day. And as a result, I often don't have a great grasp on what's happening in scholarship of music from, say, 400 years ago. And so I'm particularly excited about my guest for this very first episode of Sound Expertise, Erica Supriya Honish, an assistant professor at Stony Brook University, who researches sacred music in Prague during the 16th and 17th centuries. We talked about her research during some downtime at the 2019 Conference of the American Musicological Society. 
I miss downtime at conferences. It was a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy listening. So you work on early music. I do. And primarily in the 16th and 17th centuries? That's exactly right. So how did you actually first get interested in studying and kind of teaching and writing about early music? I think like a lot of music historians, um, I started out by playing an instrument. And for me, it was the piano. A piano showed up in the house when I was about seven. um, And my brother got lessons before I did. And I was very jealous. And so then I um, begged for lessons too. I waited a year. I was able to take them. Fast forward to college. um, I wanted to pursue music more seriously. Um, And I got sidetracked, I thought at the time, by music history classes. I got so interested um, in in the context for the music I was playing um, that I started focusing on those more than practicing. Um, And at the same time, a fortuitous um, incident occurred by which, uh, in, in which I was, um, one of the few people who was interested in learning harpsichord, uh, at my institution. And there was an opportunity to learn and to learn how to play, um, early systems of notation, what we call figured bass. Um, and so I learned how to do it. I got sucked into the world of the, the first the 18th century, then the 17th century. Um, and I just kept going back and, and sort of finding these, these interesting worlds that had, I really had had no idea existed. Um, and so I found my way in sort of through an instrument and then found my way right back through through classes, uh, really lively classes, um, uh, into, into this idea that music could help us answer big questions. And so I got totally addicted. Yeah, I'm, we'll talk about some of the big questions. But it, everything, so you, you sent me a couple of chapters from your book, which you're working on, and a, and a journal article. And it seems like everything focuses on Prague, right? Mm. So how did Prague become the place you wanted to write about? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I was I was interested in Central Europe. Um, I think in in ways I didn't quite fully understand when I first started, um, uh, you know, thinking about what my research project would be. Uh, I have family roots in my dad's side. Um, uh, on my dad's side, I should say, uh, in Central Europe, um, in actually parts of uh, parts of the world that I study now. Um, mm-hmm. Quite by coincidence, so I was kind of aware of of um, the area. I was aware that the Habsburgs were a dynasty that had sponsored a lot of music. Um, so I knew that there was probably a project in there somewhere. And I thought, well, you know, these these wealthy patrons, the Habsburgs, um, I wonder what they were doing earlier, you know, before the period when we think of, you know, Mozart and Haydn, when they're the kind of um, at, at the height of their musical patronage, um, at least as far as the, the standard stories go. And turned out there were some great emperors who loved art, um, and they were living not in Vienna, but in Prague in the 16th and 17th centuries. So I thought I would write a dissertation that was about Habsburg patronage in Prague. What a great idea. Um, the trouble was the, the king that I decided to focus on. Um, the king. That's not how I approach my work. Music but. History <laughs> an early music question. Yeah. I thought, I've got a patron. You know, you've got a patron. Um, right. His name is Rudolf II. Um, it's a great name. Um, he was a patron of the art, uh, the painter uh, Archimbaldo, uh, the guy who paints the fruit heads. Okay. Um, and so he was, you know, he seems to have been a really curious and interesting guy. Um, and so I thought, well, this is fantastic. He had a lot of music coming out of his court. I've got a dissertation here. Nobody's really written about it. Nobody's focused in the Prague context. Um, and I discovered very quickly uh, that the, that Rudolf II did not care much for music. He was not interesting. super interested in it. He had musicians. And so I started to figure out, well, 
you know, there's something here because there's all this music. So what were these musicians doing? And it turned out they were doing what musicians always do, uh, which is they were freelancing and they were finding other patrons and they were going into the city. Um, they were building their own networks. Um, and these were complicated and interesting. And so then I found myself in this city, um, you know, moved kind of away from this castle up on a hill uh, and down into the streets of the city. Um, and there I found... Um, all these different languages and all these different religions living together. It was a really cosmopolitan city at a time we don't expect it. And mm. music was this thing that kind of connected people and sometimes really divided them. And so it became a totally different project. And yeah. Yeah. Cool. That's that's really, I mean, that like the standard path, like the, the kind of cliched path is like we identify some like niche or whatever that like, you know, there's one king that yeah. no one's covered and like, let's see what, but then you, you when you keep looking, then you discover there's like a totally more interesting story. Yeah. I mean, it seems like part of your work deals, you talk about this in the book a little bit, that there has been a standard way of kind of studying this period and the Habsburgs and you're trying to do things a little bit differently. What what was the kind of typical path of studying early music and courts and how are you trying to look at it a bit differently? Yeah. Um, so this is a, this is a great question. Um, a lot of the um, a lot of the earlier work, it's incredibly valuable. Um, what it was doing, it was understanding what music did for the people who paid for it. Why would they pay for this? You know, what was it accomplishing for their public relations, for their image, uh, when they were um, when they were trying to advertise themselves, you know, as more powerful than that other king over there? Um, and I think that's great. But music, of course, is is a thing that travels um, and it gets used outside of its original context. And so I was really curious then about how, uh, when music sort of escapes these, um, the, you know, the, the, the escapes the patron, if you will, mm. um, what does it start to mean? Um, people don't always listen the way they're supposed to. They don't always hear the things they're supposed to, right? And so I became really interested in what happens when we, uh, when we sort of flip that a little bit. We think of music as this thing connecting the Habsburgs and their subjects, but then we think about what the subjects are getting out of it and how can we start to answer those questions. Um, and, and some of the answers are quite surprising. So we assume, I guess, when we're looking at a kingdom that everything's top down and that the rulers impose whatever their values or their music are on the people and then the people just kind of absorb it. But yeah. you want to, that's not actually how it works on the ground. I yeah. Guess, so right? sometimes I guess the risk one can fall into uh, or the, the danger one can fall into is um, if you just sort of explain the propaganda and, you, and we're sort of then we're buying into it. And we know today, like none of us is, is listening and, and listening without opinions to what we hear. And I don't think people were any different uh, back in the 16th and 17th centuries. The thing is, the propaganda is what survives. And so how can you read that kind of against the grain um, uh, and, and find other bits of evidence to, to find the sort of the counter narratives? Um, that, and the that, propaganda is musical. I mean, that's... Yeah, So absolutely. I want to I talk about the music, but first, can you give us like an extremely brief historical sketch of what's going on in Prague in this period? There's Absolutely. a lot going There's on. There's so much. Okay. I'll give you a very uh, a nutshell um, uh, explanation. Um, uh, Prague was basically the, the largest and most important uh, and most well-connected city in Central Europe at this time. It was a crossroads. Um, there, there were trading routes between um, East and West. Uh, and it was the capital of a, of a very wealthy kingdom, the Kingdom of Bohemia. And long story short, the Habsburgs were this kind of small dynasty that happened upon, they married into, inherited um, the throne, uh, the Bohemian throne. 
and the Czechs, uh, who were who the, the sort of the dominant uh, language group there, um, wanted to have their king live among them. So they moved their court in, it, to Prague, and it became this important capital. Uh, that's great until the Habsburgs start to impose their own religion, uh, sometimes their own language um, on their subjects. And so uh, when the Thirty Years' War breaks out, which is a war about religion, about autonomy, uh, it breaks out in Prague, and it's a rebellion of the Bohemian subjects against their Habsburg rulers. And it draws, it sort of stretches out for 30 years. Uh, and my, my book and my, my study really covers the century from 1550 to 1650, the, the lead up to the war and then the devastating war itself. And what are the religious conflicts that are kind of playing out accompanying the, the I mean, that really, I guess, intertwined with the political conflicts? Yeah. Um, so uh, a century before Martin Luther uh, nails his 95 theses up in, in Wittenberg, um, there's a fellow named Jan Hus who is preaching uh, in Prague, and he's, he's saying a lot of the same things that Luther's going to say later, and he actually really influences him. And so um, uh, we can call them Hussites, these, these Bohemian followers of Hus. Um, uh, they wanted vernacular liturgies. Uh, they, they disagreed on some doctrinal points that are kind kind of a little arc, uh, arcane, I suppose, if we get into the details. Um, they wanted to have more control over their liturgies, basically, over how they worshipped. Uh, and so uh, the Catholic Church called him in, uh, accused him of heresy at the Council of Constance. He was burned at the stake. He was a martyr. Um, and so the Hussite religion remained really strong long after he died. And it was the Habsburg attempt to suppress that that really leads to the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. They want, they love their local liturgy. They love Hus. Um, and it was all fine until the Habsburg said, now you must all be Catholic. So. All right. So music plays a role in all of this. What's happening musically in Prague in this period? What are people singing? What are they playing? What are they listening to? Like at the, at the most like zoom out, tell us what the, yeah. what's going on. Yeah. So in the castle, they're singing, um, a, there's a lot of sacred music up there. There's a big cathedral that's kind of nestled within the walls of Prague Castle and it's filled with music. Um, uh, whenever the uh, Imperial Chapel uh, is called upon to sing, which is on a major feast days or major political events like coronations, uh, we get trumpets, we get drums, we get cannons firing and we get masses being sung inside the cathedral. Now, if you go down into the city, um, and this is one of the things I learned in the course of doing my research, um, every parish church had its own choir. Um, and this is a surprise because uh, they weren't, um, uh, you know, clerics, they weren't priests, they were laymen, they were butchers, they were shoemakers, they were literate men. Um, but they replaced um, the, the, all the clerics who had been displaced um, by the earlier Hussite kind of movement, the Reformation. And so the city is absolutely filled with laymen who are often singing the same, and choir boys, I should say, who are often singing the same music that's up in the cathedral, but in a totally different context. It's their own independent churches. Um, and then, of course, there's the street music, and there's a very, very rich and, and massive, really, uh, a Jewish community that is also richly musical. They were also singing polyphony. Um, they were present at uh, royal entries. Uh, we have documents of them singing uh, in ways that really struck uh, the Christian listeners as unusual and interesting. Uh, so there's all kinds of music going on from every different community. And... You talk a lot about this metaphor of coexistence in terms of the, the terms you use, which I like a lot, are, are multilingual and multi-confessional. So I guess multiple languages and multiple religions in yeah, this period. Yeah, absolutely. So where does music fit into this idea of 
coexistence between these different religious and and political and kind of social and ethnic groups? That's a great question. Um, so I, I tend to steer away um, in the present day from the notion that music is a universal language. It's not. Um, but there's a way in which it's kind of common ground um, in this period, particularly when the text is in Latin. That's the language to which all learned people aspire. Um, it's it's the, the best music is written in Latin. And so um, I think music fits in as this kind of shared territory. And everyone, um, it's a kind of commodity. People buy it. People copy it when they can access it. Um, imperial composers might have their own networks that they send it out to. Um, and it becomes this thing that people, um, they, they have this kind of shared sound um, and, and uh even so, it doesn't, what I'm really interested in in this multi-confessional, multilingual world is it doesn't necessarily bring people together. And I'm interested in that tension. So what's an example of music not, not bringing people together? Right. So uh, one example would be um, the, the motets, which are um, polyphonic settings of, of sacred texts um, that were sung out in the streets um, during certain feast days, certain feast days that were points of um, controversy between the Hussites and the Catholics. Um, and so in those kinds of contexts, um, the same Latin ma- uh, motet, I should say, if it was if it was sung in a street with a Catholic procession that was passing through your neighborhood and everyone had to kneel down when it went by, regardless of whatever your religion or conviction was, um, that motet sounds very different than that same motet sung inside your own parish church. Um, you know, for an audience, uh, like, uh, I shouldn't say an audience, we think of them as audiences now, but a community of faithful, um, where it is the thing that really um, you're all expressing your shared doctrine. Um, in one case, it's kind of militant and and really um, it invades space. And in the other what, case, what happens? Um, so sometimes uh, uh, people riot. Uh, there there are occasions where people refuse to kneel and they're they're severely punished. Um, uh, and and sometimes the stories seem to be a little bit exaggerated. Like um, you know they'll say that oh this person was you know he was executed uh, and it'll be a story that's spread around Europe to say that in Prague the Catholics are so bad they execute people who don't you know, who don't kneel um, when this procession passes by. Um, but it often causes these, these um, it sort of um, causes these little flare-ups that then eventually lead up to this big flare-up. Um, uh, sometimes people will, um, uh, we get the sense that people refuse to listen sometimes. They'll, they'll walk away. They'll, you know, they'll, we'll find that they're not in their usual places. Um, in Vienna around the same time, um, there, there, uh, on the Feast of Corpus Christi, which is a very important feast, we, there's one time when uh, it's, the markets weren't supposed to be held that day. That was out of uh, you know, respect for the feast, and Protestant um, merchants insisted on holding them, and not only like selling things, but actually doing it on a street where the procession was going to pass. So there, there, had, there was a sort of point of contention, and a lot of milk literally spilled because they kind of they literally <laughs> ran into each other. It was called the milk war um, because, and, and there was a real worry that it might turn into something like uh, a very bloody uh, revolt like it happened in France um, or these sort of uh, religious wars that were happening elsewhere. There's a real concern it would turn very bloody. So when we typically think about a genre like the motet and music in this period, you know, we look at the text and the relationship between the text and the music and we make some conclusion about what the music means. So Mm -hmm. when you take that and then you add to it people fighting each other, I mean, maybe not fighting, fighting, but... You know, this dissent and rebellion, how do you feel, does that affect what the music means in Prague in this period? Yeah, um, one of the things I realized very quickly with 
just looking at this music, listening to it, singing through it, um, is it's very conventionalized in its gestures. It's actually very hard to do with this early music in the 16th and 17th centuries, what we do with music of the 18th and 19th centuries and say, well, you know, when Schubert does this in this song, this is what he means. Um, or, you know, this is how he's interpreting the poem. It's actually kind of hard to do that for, um, for some of this music, because its most important role uh, was to convey uh, a, a specific doctrinal message or something. And so um, one of the things I discovered um, uh, in, in studying these, these Latin-texted uh, motets is that the musical language is highly conventional. Um, uh, and, and part of that is because it needs to be, people need to understand uh, you know, that, that this particular motet is supposed to make us think of these things and, and pray in this certain way. Um, and one of the things I discover then um, in, in thinking about these things in these different contexts is that the same sounds can be heard radically differently depending on what the sermon is that comes before it, um, uh, depending on you know things like the ritual context, like whether it's in procession, whether it's being uh, sung in your particular uh, square, or, uh, sorry, your particular parish church. And so um, it becomes very, very hard then to attach specific meaning to specific mm. sounds. And you realize everything is contextual. And it's something that I feel very strongly about because I think today musical listening is absolutely contextual. Sure. I mean, and, you listen to a song and you, half the time you don't even know what the words are. But yeah. You, you know, it's about your breakup or whatever. Right. No, exactly. I mean, that's like the that's most exactly basic, it. basic example. Yeah, yeah, but. yeah. Or, and, and the other thing is, too, like, you know, what you hear is who, it depends on who you are. And I think that's a thing we sometimes lose because we sort of imagine these, the sort of the listener in the 16th century. And they, there was no the listener back then. So anymore. this is identity. It really is. I think so. I think, I think, um, you know, it's, it's, I want to resist the idea of this, these sort of um, monolithic interpretations that's, that held true for everyone. I think they held true for some people, maybe, if things worked the way we're supposed Do to. Do you have, like, I mean, you talk about this experience of kind of individualized listening being important because the music's, again, like, it's not just coming and being uh, everyone's understanding it in the same way. But are there individual listeners that you look at as, like, people who are affected by this music or have a relationship who talk about this music? Every now and again, I'm really lucky, and I find something in a source um, that, that hints. It just gives me a little glimpse into what people were hearing. And I have two concrete examples. Um, one is an archbishop named um, Cardinal Harach, who was working in the uh, 17th century. He was His a good musician. So good. Cardinal so good. Harach. Harach, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a good name. Um, and so he's working in the 17th century. He's very musically trained, um, and he expresses strong opinions. Whenever he, he goes to Rome, he comments on the papal singers. He goes, when he's in Prague, he says, you know, actually our, our singers here are better than those ones up in Frankfurt, you know, and he'll, he'll make these, these value judgments. So that's one kind of listener that's very helpful, but he's just one and he's a very powerful person. He's very literate. He's very learned. Um, the other side of that, uh, there's a, a little snippet I found in a kind of diary that was kept by the Jesuits in Prague. And sometime in the 1580s, um, they decided to sing a new, uh, basically a new motet that they'd acquired. Um, it's a four-voice motet, uh, and they name it in this chronicle. Um, and they say, and they sing it on Good Friday. And they say, it's the strangest thing. By some unseen power, it moved the affects of everyone there. And this, I mean, this is remarkable. We just don't think of this. And they, like, in this otherwise totally business-like... What does that mean, moved the, in that it, context? It moved their emotions. Everyone wept. This is sort of this, it's this kind of, um, 
it, it just means the music worked in ways they weren't expecting. And we know what the piece is. Uh, and so there's a little kind of postscript to that that's, that I find absolutely fascinating because it's a Catholic piece. Um, and it found its way through Poland into Saxony, into the Lutheran liturgy. And it was a piece that was sung on Good Friday uh, in Bach's Leipzig. And it was sung often at the end of the St. John Passion. This motet huh. that was written in Prague moved everyone's affects moved the emotions enough that the chroniclers made a note of it. You know, they were they were writing about other things, but there they are. They say, this piece of music, by the way, that worked really well. And it travels, and then, uh, you know, 120, 130 years later, there it is in Bach's Leipzig, and he's hearing the same music. Totally different context. So, coexistence, I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the fighting, but it's also hopefully not fighting, right? So, and it seems like you talk about the ways, not just that, music but also like music as a metaphor becomes this metaphor for coexistence Mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about that like the meaning of harmony as musical harmony and as like social religious harmony absolutely um a word that just comes up everywhere um as it does for us it comes up everywhere in the 16th 17th and 17th centuries is the idea of harmony we should live harmoniously um and the fascinating thing is when you've got a city where a lot more lay people are singing and a lot more lay people are singing like polyphony than in other places. Um, Harmony has a meaning, a kind of uh, narrow meaning that it probably doesn't have in in places where it's just become a mere metaphor. Um, And that meaning goes back to antiquity. Um, uh, uh, Harmony uh, in the sort of this old formulation going back to the ancient Greeks um, is the concord of discords. Um, It's trying to figure out just how much difference you can accommodate um, and how can you have different sounds that will sound well together and that is harmony it's not unisons it's not the same sounds but it's different sounds that can somehow be accommodated and so we start to find uh, in this uh, religiously pluralist city um, where everyone's trying to get along um, pastors and priests trying to figure out and trying to admonish their their, their um, parishioners um, to live musically, uh, to live in harmony. But also that always means, and this is, I think, sort of a cautionary note, um, lest we get sort of rosy, rose-colored glasses uh, about all of this, there are always limits. Um, there are some people who are never going to be able to be accommodated into that harmony. Right. And so this becomes a real a real question. How? What are the limits of what can be accommodated, the difference that can be accommodated? So... If music, I mean, that gets us to kind of disharmony. And so what are, what were the ways in which music could actually be in some way kind of like weaponized as a force for creating not just difference, but even like violence in some way? Are there Mm. examples of this? I was thinking of the, you talk a little bit about the Prague's Christians versus the Jews and some of the kind of conflicts that emerge in that. Yeah. Well, there's there's an interesting aspect. Um, One of the big surprises in delving more into the Jewish community um, and their presence in Prague was that they sang polyphony and they sang it as part, fully part of these royal entries in the 16th century. Fast forward to the 17th century in the Thirty Years' War, um, a lot of Christian musicians have been sent off to war, or they're, you know, they're, they fled basically uh, at this point. Um, and so there's a shortage of musicians, and a lot of Jewish musicians step in to um, to kind of fill in the gap. Uh, and so what happens is 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 the Jews are totally. Um, 
absolutely capable of singing the music that the Christians are singing. Um, Christian musicians um, and, and, and Christian priests start to complain as soon as peace sets in. They complain, um, and, and they complain about the Jews because they say, they do it in distinctly musical terms. Um, they, they complain because um, they say that uh, uh, they'll, 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 even though the Jews can kind of mimic, it's a familiar kind of accusation against the Jews, even though they can mimic uh, the, the sounds of Christians. Straight, look straight to Wagner. Right? Straight to Wagner. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're deliberately... Um, um, uh, they're deliberately undermining the beat. You know, they're they're you know singing with a slight sense wow. of derision, um, and so they they'll say these things. And because of that, they are agents of disharmony. Um, and so we find this um, this moment where they're basically part and parcel of the fabric of this multi-confessional, um, multilingual city, uh, and part of its musical fabric too. Their difference is heard, but it's allowed and accommodated. And when they start being um, sort of woven too closely into that fabric and singing some of this music, then they become accused of disharmony. Before it's just difference and then it becomes disharmony and then they're fighting constantly for their rights. And wow. one of the one of the things that, that I discovered is that there a lot of the, the terms in which they frame their own um, pleas to the emperor uh, is in terms of their humanity. They are musical uh, because they are human. They are human because they are musical. Um, and it's a really interesting set of um, uh, and, and, and really upsetting. So the, almost like the demonstration of humanity because of artistic excellence, that Absolutely. kind of like, that's respectability kind of trope. Wow. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that seems to resonate constantly historically, but how do you, do you feel like your study of coexistence in music has, I mean, we're in a very, a time of uh, coexistence seems quite fragile. Yeah. Are, there, are there lessons for our, our current moment? Oh, in Prague in the 17th century. I mean, I, I feel like century. I write. Th I'm writing this project very much with with the presence in mind. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and I think and checking the New York Times. While yeah. You're, or oh, Twitter, absolutely. Or, yeah. No, and and I'm just so acutely aware of people trying so hard. So many good people trying so hard to live well together, and so many other people. Um, undermining the very terms uh, under which we are trying so hard to live together and accommodate and respect uh, and welcome difference. Uh, and so I think the lesson to be learned uh, from, uh, uh, and, and maybe this is, this is, this is too obvious a point that the lesson to be learned from Prague in, you know, the 1610s is this works as long as you don't have powers from above insisting on sameness, uh, insisting on regularizing what must not be regularized, um, insisting on, you know, dividing where, um, um, where a, a simple sort of accommodation uh, had sufficed for so long. And it's an imperfect, and it's always um, an unsettled kind of pluralism in the 16th century. It was not ideal, um, but it worked, basically. And it's only when you come in from the top and you say, you know, things must go this way, and this is the way we are here, and we must be here. It's only when that happens mm. that violence breaks out, and it's it's terrible when it does. And so that's, I mean, that in a, in a way is a story that, hasn't that we wouldn't have gotten in musicology without your kind of work right because otherwise we had this simple kind of like one-to-one -one exchange between rulers and subjects in Prague in this period I don't know the literature super well but you mm. obviously do um, and so now we have the idea of difference being a, a part of this city musical difference ethnic difference absolutely yeah and and thinking not to toot your own horn too no much, no and i i'm so grateful for the work the, the really rich work that has been done on the courts because i think um there's no there's no doubt that the Habsburgs were excellent image makers and they were acutely 
attuned to how they were be- how their image was being read. And I think there's still so much work to be done in that respect. I just think that music, because it travels in these in, in books and it travels when it's sung, um, it opens up these other pathways. And sort of um, follow-up to that is that music books, because they were precious, survived where other kinds of documents don't. So sometimes they're the only documents of certain kinds of communities, of certain... Uh, individual. Sometimes you'll find a person's name, a, a doodle in a book, um, where otherwise these people have vanished completely. You know, the other kinds of documents are destroyed. Wow. So we have this unique little window onto all kinds of That's things. It's incredible. Yeah. Cool. I, this is why I got sucked in. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're, it's, it's very clear that this is, yeah, this is a great, uh, really rich place to, to research. And how does that I mean, how does this whole project relate? I know you're involved in an initiative, which I don't really know much about, about making early music more inclusive. Yeah. So how does your work intersect with that? What is that initiative kind of about? Right. So um, those of us who teach early music, we end up teaching invariably kind of a long line of mostly men and definitely all European men up to about, you know, 1700. Maybe we might squeak in someone from, you know, New Spain in the Mm -hmm. 17th century. Um, And so uh, a few of us, there's probably about 30 of us now formed a little collective. Um, uh, We're all people who teach early music and we don't want to teach it that way anymore. Um, It turns out it's, it's kind of a deadly way to teach it for one thing and it misses out all all the ways in which music had meaning and circulated and it leaves out a lot of the important people who were making music at the time and sort of influencing its sounds. So um, what we've done is we formed this collective, we share resources on um, uh, whenever we find an interesting article, whether it's an art history, music history that deals with some kind of um, a, a, maybe a, a marginalized community in a city, um, a musician of color, um, music theorist of color, there are people that you start to poke through even the Middle Ages and you start to find that there were you know, uh, musicians and, and music theorists who were not white in Europe. Um, and so we, we find these little tidbits um, uh, and we try to share them with each other. We share assignments. Uh, and the goal is that just um, in the, at this very low-key level, um, we're all gradually kind of shifting the way this stuff is taught and opening up, hopefully, new areas of inquiry for the students who are in our classrooms. What kinds of, I mean, what do we learn better when we make early, that's a terribly worded <laughs> grammatically question, but but what, I mean, what what are the kinds of things that, that we want our students to know in making early music more inclusive? I mean, beyond making it it's, I guess part of it is just making it harmonized with what we believe in. But. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's just about, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we, we find ourselves in the past, right? Uh, but I think also it's just recognizing that when music was made and heard back then, it was made in this rich and interesting context, and it was not in this sort of purified way that sometimes it gets sort of passed on in these sort of sanitized, you know, I mean that in a kind of a loose sense, of sanitized narratives where um, where the women are written out. or sure. you know, you it's know, like, oh yeah, it's the 19th century. Now there are three women the 21st century there are six yeah (laughs) exactly um and so kind of keeping our ears peeled for um there's a lot of interesting work going on um for instance uh uh in in the intersections between like arabic uh or or, um uh, turkish musicians and and the so-called west right um there are really interesting things going on on um if we just think about um uh women making music in convents. Um, they were far more creative um, than, than we might have uh, uh, imagined. And a lot of them are anonymous. We love attaching names to people because then we can you know, valorize them and elevate them and put them in pedestals. But what about all these anonymous women? Um, so you know, we, we learn a lot just by kind of um, taking a step back, looking at the sources, um, and finding everyone who was making music. Uh, there were many more than we could possibly imagine. 
Wow. Well, this has all been really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. Many, many thanks to Professor Erica Supriya Honesh for that fascinating conversation. You can follow her and her work on Twitter at Dr. Canonic. I'm Will Robin, your host for this very first episode and for many future episodes of Sound Expertise. For more information and notes on today's episode, please visit our website, soundexpertise.org. Additional thanks to my producer and engineer and composer of our awesome theme music, the great D. Edward Davis. You can follow him on Twitter at Warm Silence and also check out his SoundCloud, also Warm Silence, to listen to some of his great music. You can follow me on Twitter at Seated Ovation. Finally, please subscribe to Sound Expertise on Stitcher, Apple, and wherever else you get your podcasts and tell your friends to listen. Tune in next week for a conversation with the musicologist Lauren Kajikawa about race, classical music, hip-hop, and white supremacy in university music curricula. Trust me, you will not want to miss it. Bye!